This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your space. Hello everyone, a very good evening. This is Ajay Ramasubramaniam, co-founder and CEO of Hindsight Ventures. Welcome to, to everyone to episode 17 of Founders 52. Before we jump into the conversation with, with Nisha, the co-founder of Ubongo, uh, a quick background on, on Founders 52 and, and Hindsight Ventures. We see ourselves as a startup accelerator focusing on Africa and focusing on African entrepreneurs building in the continent to serve Africa. Uh, we have been around for over three years. Our parent company is headquartered in, in India as Startup Rezo, and we started Hindsight Ventures because we believe that the next decade and, and beyond entrepreneurship in Africa is, is going to be the, the next big thing. And we want to, to be a part of, of that ecosystem development. And as a part of that, we have been operating boot camps, pre-accelerators and accelerator programs since December 2020. Uh, we are operate extensively in, in East Africa, but having said that, uh, just today we launched our, our program with uh, with Nigeria, with Vaza Challenge Nigeria, which is the property that we first brought to, to East Africa, and our, our current applications are on for Vaza Challenge Nigeria. If, if anyone from Nigeria is dialing into this, this live chat, you should go on to our website and, and apply into that. Uh, coming to, to Founders 52, we see this as an ecosystem development initiative where we bring interesting journeys of entrepreneurs who have been building in Africa over the past several years. And we see that storytelling as or as an, or, or narrative as a, as a form of bringing forward conversations, experiences is a great way to, to inspire people to, to take up entrepreneurship. Uh, it, it seems just like last few weeks ago that we, we launched Founders 52 as an initiative. But we're already on to episode 17, and we have had some really solid founders sharing their, their journeys, uh, how they have built their first ventures, how they have pivoted, how they have raised capital, and so on and so forth. So today we have with us Nisha Ligon, co-founder of Ubongo. Nisha, welcome on the chat. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. Um, before we, we dive into to Ubongo Kids and the work that you have been doing over the years. I mean, 32 million is, is no mean feat. Uh, the fact that we have gotten to, to that that kind of a number, building a, a social enterprise in the in the, a, the edutainment space. Uh, just just a little bit of backstory on, on Nisha, the individual, where you come from, uh, your academics, what were you doing before your entrepreneurial journey, if, if our viewers can know a bit more about you. Sure. Yeah. So um, I am, I'm actually not, I'm not from East Africa, though I've lived there for the past about 11 years. Um, I'm originally, I'm Thai American. So I'm born in Bangkok uh, in Thailand, but grew up mostly, always went to school in Richmond, Virginia, and kind of had this childhood that was back and forth between two very different countries and cultures um, and a very, very global family. Um, but I was always kind of pulled towards Africa. Um, and I had this real love of nature and biology and ecology since I was a small child. Always liked being out of, out in nature, playing with animals, bugs, all of that. Was always that kind of muddy, dirty kid um, who, who was playing outside. And I think that's part of what drew me towards East Africa. Um, my other love was storytelling and creating. So I was fortunate enough that we had, you know, a little camcorder as a kid. So I was always like making films, writing stories, um, just kind of a writer and producer um, from a very young age. Um, and so educationally, I was lucky enough to go to a magnet school in America, which is like a, it's a government school, so it's free, uh, but you kind of have to apply to get them and it's um, themed. And mine was themed government and international studies. And I think having gone to secondary school with that very international focus, where, you know, we were reading African and Asian literature, we were really encouraged to think globally and have kind of service orientation um, shaped my view of what I'd be able to do in the world. Um, and also having this kind of global background where I was thinking quite differently um, from those kids who uh, are maybe achieving academically who are pushed towards be a doctor, be a lawyer, um, you know, these kind of more standard paths. Um, so in university, uh, I started in the U.S. for university. And um, one of the wonderful things about U.S. universities, you can kind of anything, right? It's not like a place where you have to pick a single course and path. So I, um, 
you know, I majored in ecology, but I also studied film. I did African studies. I learned Kiswahili. Uh, I learned kind of basic web development, interactive design, and was able to study all these different things and also run the university TV station, which I may spend a lot of time making films um, and doing other things like that. So, um, you know, that kind of gave me some experience that I think laid a foundation for me to kind of start a startup and, and create something. Um, and then I also opportunity to study abroad. So I went to the University of Dar es Salaam for my third year um, and, and got to study in Tanzania. And it was while I was there that my interest kind of shifted towards working in education because I was surrounded by these really brilliant students. I mean, truly, um, you know, to get into UDSM in Tanzania, it's like the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and Stanford combined, right? It's so, um, there are so few universities and so few children. Um, students get the chance to go to university. So I was surrounded by all these really brilliant students, but I saw how they had a real lack of access to educational resources. Um, and I was that person on campus because I had a laptop and access from my U.S. university to academic journals. You know, people would bring me like USB sticks every day, and I'd be downloading whatever journal articles they needed and kind of putting them onto these USBs for them because they they just couldn't access these journal articles and academic articles they, they wanted needed for their own research and their interests. And so I started really thinking, well, if I can use my skills towards improving education, then actually all these other students, you know, if they get the access to resources and additional education outside of the formal system that they need, they can go on to fix all the other problems. Um, so that kind of set me on a slightly different path. Uh, and I was continuing to work in media, but switched more towards like documentary and educational media. I did a master's in the UK in that, um, and got to work, you know, did some freelance with BBC, The Guardian, The Times Museum, just, just upping my production skills. And then went to work for an e-learning startup in London, actually, who were delivering video-based educational content um, for corporates in the UK also use technology. Um, to deliver educational media to kids in Africa. So that's what I joined to do, their content development. Um, and working there, working within this kind of crazy, chaotic startup, it, it was almost like this accelerated course of being able to get things done. Um, I would really recommend it for anyone who's thinking of being a founder, go work in an earlier growth stage startup yourself and kind of get that experience um, in the midst of it and that um so you know i came in to be creating these educational videos but essentially since i was the first one doing that um, i had to also create the processes for how we're going to be able to scale that right from owning the plan or like language adaptation and creating documentation for that and then managing um team of 30 people who were going to do that work um, so not only was I kind of honing my technical skills, but I was getting this real trial by fire in learning to manage a budget, um, doing HR, developing workflows, doing kind of like innovation for process and product, uh, and then also getting insights to how investment worked in startups. So um, yeah, working somewhere else really gave me that experience, but it also became clear to me that the way um, we were doing the work really good for kids in the UK, but it wasn't going to work for kids in Africa um, because they didn't have access to the tech we were using. So I had a lot of opinions about, well, if we want to make this accessible for Africa, we should use other technologies, like not have this all be online on a proprietary platform, but be on TV and radio, um, use SMS and USSD. It was, for context, this was like 2011-ish. Um, it also started to feel wrong to be like, why am I sitting in an office in London thinking we know what's needed for kids in Africa, right? Like if I want to go to Africa, I need to be there on the ground, working locally uh, and, and listening to users there. Um, so on, on my leave, like on my vacation, I basically went down to Kenya, Tanzania and started linking up with folks in the tech space there. Um, and I, I had been doing some work for BBC, so I, I asked them, hey, there's this demo Africa event going on in Kenya. Some people might know um, where's this tech launch pad. So I covered it for the BBC, uh, and that allowed me to go and like interview and talk to all of these different amazing founders from across Africa. And almost give myself the confidence, hey, this is something I can do too. And also see that there was a gap 
for what I was hoping to do, which was um, to create educational media and deliver it through a combination of tech that students in Africa already had. So radio, TV, and basic mobile phones, rather than content needing to be online or with a tablet or with a computer. Um, so yeah, I just kind of kept moving on that. Uh, and then at an event at a tech hub in, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, there's a hub there which is sadly not around anymore, but we, we wouldn't exist if it weren't for that hub. Um, I met a software developer named Arnold Day, who was developing programs on mobile VAS uh, and also doing, um, starting to do some work in education. So we started talking about this idea of how can you create broadcast educational media and then add interactivity to it by SMS or USSD so that you could really deliver an interactive learning experience, but you wouldn't need for your user to have the internet or a computer or a tablet. Um, so yeah, that was an idea. It really stuck in my mind and I, I had to go back to my job, but we stayed in touch and eventually Arnold put me in touch with a friend of his who was a teacher who Tom, who'd been creating short educational animations with his brother, Kanya, who was a really incredible musician and actor, and his friend, Rajab, who's an animator. And so it was actually, it wasn't just Yuhei, Nisha with her idea, my story, each of them had their own story they brought to this. And it was really us coming together where we realized, okay, between what I'm trying to do, what they've been trying to do, what Arnold's doing, if we combine that all, we could have a really great product. Um, and so that's really how Ubongo started. And from there, you know, I um, eventually you know, quit my job in London, moved back to Tanzania, and we just started creating. It all really started from the product there. Awesome. I think, uh, Nisha, you, you answered a whole bunch of questions that I'd have otherwise come to, but uh, that, that makes for a good start. It, 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 it says a lot about your journey. But one of the things I, I picked up from that, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs should also probably kind of uh, the ones which are here live on this conversation, but also the ones that would tune in to our Spotify channel or Apple podcast where we put this up is that I think if you want to start up, uh, one of the more important things to do is is probably to work at a, at a startup before. Uh, at times it can be chaotic, but it kind of uh, lends itself really well and, and gears an, an individual before he or she actually steps into the role of be, becoming a founder or, or starting a company, which is which is uh, not not the easiest thing to do. Uh, but if you've spent time in a in a startup, I think it will it will gear you really well. So I think that's that's a point well taken. And and also, I mean, some of the things that you that you mentioned uh, your your journey. I mean, being creative. I mean, uh, what you're trying to do by by leveraging digital, uh, by leveraging the the mobile internet penetration and, and bringing. Uh, edutainment, which which uh, one of the things I would want want the audience to know, and and for you to talk about Ubongo Kids as well. Do you do you see uh, Ubongo Kids as supplementing formal education or substituting formal education, or or how how do you kind of position yourself? Yeah, so definitely as a supplement and not a substitute. Um, that's always seen it. Um, so of course. Formal education system. We, we are never that oh, kids should watch our content. So, so we create for background for people who don't know, educational media um, across platforms and technologies that's localized uh, and teaches entertainment. Um, and it is highly effective. You know, we've done a lot of research that shows that kids get learning outcomes in numeracy, literacy, um, social and emotional learning, life skills from this content. But we would never say that it's, it's going to replace school. And so our focus has been, um, how do we look at the curriculum, look at problem topics, foundational and threshold topics. So like these really critical things that if you don't understand them, you're going to really struggle in maybe for a year. Like the relationship between a decimal and a fraction. And then how, or, or things that aren't being taught in the curriculum, you know, competition, coding, things like that. Um, and then we create content that helps kids to learn that and then, you know, integrate it with what they're learning in the classroom. Um, so it's definitely supplementary. And uh, some of the key things that, that we do to help, it's, it's a little bit different by different countries. We're in over 20 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. But say in a country like Uganda, where the school system is purely in English, 
that kids are speaking different local languages, it's important for us to try and help them learn English from local languages um, to actually help them be able to learn when they're in school. Um, so yeah, it's, it's supplementary and it's the idea is that, okay, the school, when a kid is in school, the classroom is probably overcrowded, the teacher may be undertrained, and the child might not even be learning in a language they speak. So how can we support them and their parent in the home to make them uh, what we call school ready, right? Ready to learn. And then how can we supplement that learning as they go through their educational journey um, so that they can learn to learn, so that they can learn critical skills that are going to be useful both inside and outside of the classroom. Sure. No, thanks. Thanks for, for taking that one. So uh, it's only now in the last year or probably couple of years that uh, large global media companies like the Netflixes of the world are, are thinking of, of Africanized content or bringing African content for the African masses. Uh, you, you seem to have a 10-year a or, or probably more kind of uh, legroom on, on that one. Now, the point that you make about catering to maybe 20 plus countries, uh, not all countries speaking the same languages, how easy or difficult? I mean, media is, is very powerful. Uh, so is storytelling as a, as a medium. And when you use the power of mobile internet uh, effectively to, to supplement uh, education, how easy or difficult has it been for you to, to actually create or, or build localized content? Uh, yeah, so actually one, one quick point on that. Um, you're, our, we're not, we, while we do deliver content via mobile internet, the vast, vast majority of children learning from and accessing our educational media are still using broadcast, not internet. So out of that 32 million, I think about 31 million are accessing via standard television and radio, right? So, so those may be digital now, but it's the, the linear free-to-air channels. And then about 1 million are accessing through mobile internet. So that's just, just one thing to keep in mind, even though internet penetration is growing. Sure. If you look at data costs and bandwidth and everything, we're still working in a, um, in more of, on more of those legacy technologies. Um, but then to answer your question about localization, um, it's, it is difficult for sure. Um, we are, you know, you can ask Vongo's adaptation manager, Glory, anytime. It's like trying to get this content into languages, not just, you know, French and Portuguese, which have, there, there's a whole industry of translation out there, but um, there are many languages we've done where we were the first animated content to be created in that language. So we have Kikuyu and Luo in Kenya, Hausa and Yoruba in um, Nigeria, Isizulu, um, Chichewa in Malawi, these languages where um, what we discovered we had to do, um, so there's a couple of elements to think about. It's important when designing your product in the early stages, right? So the first is designing for scalability and adaptation. So luckily with my background, having developed all these production processes at another startup where we wanted to be able to adapt in the future, I always had this idea of like, how do you design something for language adaptation in mind? So like to the technical level of the layers on the animation where text context is on a different layer and it's, it's easily changeable um, to the way that you write. You know, don't write in puns, which are language-based jokes, which aren't going to translate over. Um, so even when we were, say, creating um, outfit content, if we're saying B is for ball in English, the ball is our white class, so we can like, remove that ball and put a duck, which is bata, Kiswahili, so that we can have a B. So we really had to design from the beginning for that adaptability. And then when it comes to having people translate, um, we found that just kind of outsourcing it and paying someone to translate doesn't work. We have to really work with them and train them. So we have a whole adaptation team who do workshops on adaptation. We call it adaptation, not translation, because it goes a lot deeper than translation. But if you have a song, you're not just translating it. It has to rhyme. You know, if you're singing about the letter M, lots of things need to start with the letter M. If you're adapting it for another language and context, you have to make sure it's still educationally viable. So I would say that's, you know, kind of one of the big challenges um, that Bongo is facing over the next 10 years. Um, but it's a really exciting one. And we've done quite a bit of research that shows it's kind of both the good news and the bad news from our research is that 
adapting to a local language like Hausa or Kinyarwanda uh, increases the educational outcomes by a really, really significant amount. So that's great to know because it shows that this is a really strong lever for, for helping increase, you know, educational outcomes for kids. We can reach millions of them. The difficulty is there's more than a thousand languages in Africa. So what it means is now that we know this, we've got this huge challenge ahead of us to get into so many different languages. Great. And I know thanks for, for making that point uh, up front. I mean, broadcast as a medium has, has deep uh, penetration, distribution, the way you look at it. Uh, and, and coupling that with uh, with mobile internet, I think it, it just kind of multiplies. But having said that, uh, traditional media is, is fairly strong as well, whether we look at it, uh, radio, TV, newspapers, all of that, and, and they still continue to be uh, ahead in, in terms of the, the numbers and the the distribution, the trust, and, and all of that. Having said that, when, when we talk of transforming learning through a platform uh, like, like Ubongo, I mean, with mobile and internet, it is fairly easy to, to capture a learner's journey or whether they are progressing, I mean, all of those things. With broadcast medium, a lot of times that's, that's really challenging. So when it comes to a, a business like like yours and with the kind of reach that you have managed to build over the over the years how how does ubongo uh, measure uh, i mean the, the popularity charts is one uh, the, the more number of people that that keep getting added more countries that keep getting added it means that there is there is uh, some magic in the sauce but as 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 an entrepreneur who is trying to make that that impact or 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 bring about change in the in the education patterns. How do you go about measuring uh, learning indices or uh, the, the the growth and and change? Yeah, that that's a great question. Um, it's it's difficult, and we have to use very um, kind of face to face and offline methods to do it. So so there's kind of a couple of things we're looking at. So the first is, of course, reach and viewership. So how many kids are, are tuning in and then how often are they tuning in? What's their frequency? Um, and that we work with basically um, media monitoring organizations and, and companies like, like Geopoll who do viewership and listenership polling um, and work with them is generally via SMS um, to look at, you know, how many households are tuning in, um, are they coming back and tuning in week after week, et cetera. So, that, so that's kind of the first thing you know, right? Who's it reaching? And then you've got to know if they watch a certain amount, how much is a child learning? And to do that, it is, you know, it's the same way you look at any educational outcomes. You've got to have some kind of a treatment group who are accessing this and then a control group and uh, follow them over time and compare. And it's especially hard with what we do because, um, you know, we're broadcasting at national scales. So it's really, you can't compare, you, you can't stop kids from watching the content, right? Um, so what we've sometimes done, like with our show, Achille and Me, so we have three shows now. The second one was Achille and Me. So we did a pretty rigorous, um, uh, like, control trial of that. Um, where before we launched the show, we had some communities that had screening centers where kids could come and watch it, and then others where kids went and watched um, uh, control content. So basically, cartoons in Kiswahili that weren't educational. Uh, and we did that over time, gave the kids, uh, you know, you give them an assessment at the beginning, you give them one at the end, and you can compare um, how much did the children in the group who were watching Achille and me learn in comparison to the group who were uh, watching the control content. Um, so, so that's how we do a really intensive trial. Um, and then we've also worked with researchers to do um, kind of broader studies where you're looking at a huge sample size, but you're not controlling things as much and trying to say, hey, if we, if we look at, you know, kind of the learning improvements and the test scores of a child who has been watching this compared to a similar child, right, of a similar socioeconomic status, et cetera, who was not watching the show, um, how do their outcomes compare? Very interesting, very interesting. Uh, and and you still call yourself as a as a social enterprise, right? I mean, uh, why 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 do you fall under a bracket of a social enterprise? I mean, why why wouldn't you want? I mean, when you see that the the potential of of media and storytelling is so powerful and it can be scaled 
massively and there's uh, you can you can grow much faster why did you choose to to remain a a social enterprise so we're social enterprise and we're a non-profit social enterprise so um you know registered locally as an NGO and with a US uh, nonprofit. And, and the reason for that is, I mean, it's, it's how we've been able to grow and scale. Um, as much as there is huge potential with broadcast media to reach a massive audience, um, as everyone can see with uh, what's happening around the world with media, there, there's almost this kind of crisis of um, how to monetize. And how do you pay creators? And um, if you look at what we do, right, educational children's media around the world, um, in places like Europe and the U.S., uh, it's mostly government funded, right? So this is even though something like, um, you know, the shows on CBBS or or you know Sesame Street or these programs, they they have large viewership. They they are funded by government funding, and that's really the model. So when we're in countries in Africa where there's not uh, funding available from the government, who, who is the, the core funder for education, we have to look for other sources. So there's basically two choices, right? You can either monetize your, well, let me, actually three choices. So you can monetize your users directly, right? Have them or their parents pay. Um, for us, we're trying to reach the poorest of the poor. It's just not viable. Four-year-olds in Africa have no money. Right. Like a smallholder farmer may have a little bit to pay. A four year old has nothing to pay um, and parents are already stretched on school fees. So um, we didn't want to have to directly monetize users. Um, and if you want to get into that more, like there's a lot of experiments we want, we've run and I can share about, you know, where where that might work and where that doesn't. But um, for us, for the age group we're looking at, we couldn't monetize the user. Um, then the other model for media is really advertising, right? And so that's how we started with bootstrapping and some advertising. Um, but it, it turned out to not be a scalable model. And um, that industry is kind of changing really quickly as, um, you know, online content um, is taking over, um, ad money is moving away from broadcast, um, and there's a lot of regulation on how advertising can be done on children's content. Um, so, so there's not a huge amount of ad revenue potential there. And then your third option is basically you're getting people to pay for educational outcomes. So if the government's not going to pay for it, then you're looking at private philanthropy or international aid. And so that's really where we're at. You know, our focus is on, can we reach as many kids as possible? Our content is free, it's openly available. Um, and if we can show educational outcomes at a lower cost per child than other interventions, then we're able to access that educational funding. And, and you have someone like Lego Foundation backing you as well. So if you want to, to share a bit about I mean, I'm sure that Lego knows how to, to engage with, with kids and the, the age group that you target. So I'm sure that uh, even though it's the foundation, it's it's very strategic in nature. So if you can share with our audience, I mean, your engagement with, uh, with Lego Foundation. Yeah. So just as with any other funder, what Lego is really funding us for as a foundation is um, funding for the impact and outcomes that we're able to achieve. Um, when we're getting funding from other educational funders, say from a private foundation in the U.S. or, or something like um, the U.K. FCDO government funding or, or someone like the World Bank, they're generally looking at outcomes in numeracy, literacy, what they call kind of these hard educational skills. Um, but with someone like Lego, their focus is actually on play and social emotional learning. So, so the funding we received from Lego is pretty specifically on how we can increase play-based learning in Africa. Um, when you say it's strategic for Lego, um, it's actually quite important to understand their structure. Um, the foundation is not a CSR initiative. It is actually one of the owners of the corporation. So Lego is not a public company, it's owned privately. This space was downloaded via spacesdown.com. Visit to download your spaces today. By a family and by a foundation. So as opposed to you know other foundations where you would have a big corporation and then they have a small foundation under them, Lego has the opposite structure where they have a charitable foundation, which is where um, a large amount of the profits from their for-profit operations go. So, um, we are receiving funding from that foundation, which is a partial owner of the corporation. 
So if you want to talk about social enterprises, in a way you can see Lego as a social enterprise where what they're doing is instead of paying out um, you know, shareholders and stockholders with the profit they're making from selling bricks in wealthy countries, what they're doing is they're taking those profits and then helping to fund play-based learning in other places like where we work, where we're not doing anything to say distribute Lego consumer products because those are very expensive. We're finding other ways through educational media to support play-based learning. You know, Nisha, thanks for, thanks for uh, talking about structures of not just companies like, like yourselves or social enterprises, but also, I mean, uh, organizations which probably might be similar to, to the Lego Foundation and, and how they are structured because it's fairly important for social enterprises and entrepreneurs building social enterprises to know because um, it's the, the kinds of funding available. I think uh, the most common one that many of the entrepreneurs would, would know, yes, on one hand, you have grant making, but with grant making, you, know, you cannot build companies or, or legacy, which is a decade and, and beyond. Uh, and that's one of the challenges because a lot of entrepreneurs early on, they are jumping from program to program or stage to stage, but those are like really small uh, pockets of money. On the other hand, uh, companies know about venture capital money and it's it's not easy to come by. And then you have people who are building uh, tech-based or even non-tech ventures in the in the impact space or social enterprises. And many of them, they, they do not know they might they might be winning awards they might be getting grants but if they want to kind of create impact at scale it requires much more than uh, a few hundred thousand dollars here and there and and that's why it's probably important for a lot of social entrepreneurs to also know uh, the the kind of uh, sources or resources available for them to go after so as a as an entrepreneur building a social enterprise would you want to kind of from your example or or your experience and exposure over the years how how do social enterprises go about scaling their ventures and raising capital to to support that yeah i don't think there's any one size fits all solution so i can share a little bit about about the journey we went through. Um, but again, you know, it's unique to what we're doing and, and who is essentially the payer, right? Who is paying for, for your product or your outcome or your service. Um, so we did start as a for-profit social enterprise. As I mentioned, we were monetizing through advertisement. So we actually bootstrapped. We didn't have to raise money for um, at least a year because First off, we had five co-founders who had the skills in-house to make our product. So, that, so that's your first thing before even going and like looking for money, right, to hire a bunch of people. Can you find the right group of people to start this? You can create it without really needing any money except for, you know, some small consumables or, you know, software and stuff like that. So, so that, that was the first thing, and that was why we were able to bootstrap, because we really were able to create between me, Rajab, Tom, Klinga, and Arnold, um, and only three of us were working on it full time. We were able to fully create the product and get it launch ready um, and iterate and test with, with users. So, so we were at a pretty mature stage before we needed to, to generate um, that kind of get, get a funder um, to fund it. And then we, we managed to sign a deal with a big bank um, as a kind of corporate sponsor and advertiser on our shows. So, so we were producing um, ads for them, essentially, for children's bank accounts using our cartoon characters uh, and then putting them on as the sponsor of the TV show. And so that, that got us over a year of funding to be able to get an office, start hiring a team, and get our product launched on TV in Tanzania. Um, and I think we reached about 1.6 million users in that first year. So by bootstrapping to that point, um, we were able to kind of delay raising any outside capital for a while until we were at a, a slightly more, you know, mature point where we had, you know, over a million users. Um, and then that's when we started looking into um, raising uh, capital. So when we were a for-profit social enterprise then a benefit corporation, we were raising from, um, uh, sorry, social impact investors, right? So, so VC funds, but that are, are interested in that double bottom line, as they call it. Um, and we also managed to get a loan. So we got a loan from the foundation, which bought us some time to, to raise funding. Um, and uh, we needed to scale, we wanted to scale beyond Tanzania. And we knew that that advertising that we had wouldn't wouldn't scale because the bank was a Tanzanian bank and, and frankly they didn't even want us going to other countries uh, where they weren't present so definitely wasn't a scalable model we had there 
Um, so we were raising money and we had interest from, from a, a large corporate, um, which, which was a large education company, which had a VC arm who were investing in us. And then a social impact investment fund um, raising about a million dollars. We were raising that round. Um, and what happened is we were going through that fundraising process is a, we were realizing that, the business model we thought we had, which was the sponsorship and advertising, was not going to be scalable and was not going to generate the kinds of returns that the VC fund wanted to see. And I was getting pressure you know, from people at this fund to say, hey, I need to see higher numbers in the financial model. And me saying, you know, the, no matter which way we look at it, we, I can't, you know, I, I would be lying if I increased these numbers just from the actual, you know, data we had from doing the work and from looking at the, the size of that kind of advertising market when you cut it for, for what, what's child appropriate. Um, so that was the one thing was like, okay, they're saying we need to make more money. We're saying we can't make more money through this model. So, so we are facing the choice of either we put content behind a paywall and then you're targeting a different audience than what we wanted, right? So then now you're looking at kids who are in private schools, kids who can afford other ed tech that is out there versus who we're trying to reach, which was the children who were in government schools who didn't have access to quality education. Um, so we really talked about it as a whole team and said, look, we're faced with this. If we want to stay for profit, this is a different model. Right? You're going kind of the Disney route where this is a premium product and people are paying for it and it's only the local can afford it. Or maybe there's a different way to do this. You know, you look at like Sesame Street, Khan Academy, those who are doing really successful ed tech that's that's for you know children who are living in poverty, and they're essentially either government or philanthropically funded. And the good news was that our founders and our team were all very aligned. It, it was that for us, we're all doing this with a mission, and it was mission first. Um, so we actually switched to being a nonprofit. And, um, you know, so one of the VC dropped out of an investment round, and we we're so fortunate the, um, the um, social impact fund we were talking to, the Midyar Network, um, they stuck by us and they said, we'll give you a grant and we'll cover the whole million dollars. So um, it was because they're showing impact, we were very honest with them throughout this whole process. And they, you know, we took the funder on that with us to see why we needed to be a nonprofit and why we needed grant funding to get us going. And I think because they shared that journey with them and we were very honest and open, they were actually giving, willing to give us more money as a grant than they were initially going to invest as a VC. And that kind of gave us the wings to, to take off, continue scaling, um, and then raise other funding. So in, in your journey of, of building a, a social enterprise, leveraging media, but, but solving for, for education across, across the continent, what, is, what has been uh, tougher? Has it been acquiring customers who are, who are kids or, or probably their, their parents, I don't know, or has it been on the, on the content and distribution side? those things go really hand in hand so when you talk about customer acquisition um you know by using broadcast media um we have kind of built-in advertising right so if we make a really quality show the, the key is it has to be entertaining because what we're banking on is someone going turning the tv on and sitting there for half an hour to learn right no one's going to force them to do it um so we have to have really entertaining and sticky content that brings kids back week after week and has parents watching too. So, so the content and the customer acquisition are tied really closely together that way. And every single episode that Ubongo creates is um, tested with kids to make sure that it's really connecting with them. Um, so, so that's how we know by the time it goes out on TV, um, we know kids are going to watch it and they're, they're going to enjoy it and they're also going to learn something from it. Um, then on the distribution side, um, it's, it, it's quite different from digital where you're growing, say, you know, certain percent month on month with viewers. Um, it's like these big discrete steps as you're launching new distribution partners for what we do, right? So it'll be, let's say we had 1.6 million on TV in Tanzania with TBC. 
And then we launched with Citizen, or actually it was NTV first in Kenya. Um, and so over that one month of launch, we grew our viewership by another million viewers. Um, so it's not, it's not this kind of gradual increase, it's these big steps. So you might work for a couple of months to sign a new broadcast deal or sign a new distribution partner, you know, with say a, someone like Showmax, who's like the Netflix of Africa. Um, and then once you launch there, you're going to increase your number of users by a huge amount. So it's, it's a very much a partnership model. Um, the content, you know, you can think of it as very B2C because it's direct to consumers in their households. There is a very important kind of middle partner there. Um, there's this B2B side of it of doing the deals with the broadcasters or the distribution partners. Uh, and then increasingly, Ubongo has its own products, too, that are that are reaching kids like, uh, you know, having content on YouTube. We have a WhatsApp bot, chat bot apps and things like that, that that are a little bit more of that either linear or exponential growth where you're growing a bit at a time rather than those huge steps of signing another partner and then reaching, say, another two or three million audience. Very cool. Um, so in, in case, so a couple of couple of questions uh, on, on that one. So if you look at uh, if you look at IP that's that gets created by by media houses, uh, and I'm I'm talking from from experience of, of seeing some of some of the the companies in in India where where I'm calling in from. Uh, many of the IPs have the have the potential to go beyond the screen, right? And that also becomes an additional uh, monetization channel. So everyone who produces ed- edutainment content uh, or or has an edutainment channel also has the has this uh, rock star character uh, and around whom there can be several spin-offs possible i mean classic example for probably a, a toy company like mattel would be the barbie franchise going on to to even a movie so as as ubongo and and your expansion within the continent um, and based on on how kids relate to ubongo as a brand do you see from an expansion standpoint or from a growth standpoint uh, spin-offs taking shape beyond the, the, the TV screen? Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, we, ha- we have a lot of digital products, right? So, so apps, um, storybooks, uh, e-books, uh, we have a podcast. So, so there's lots of digital spinoffs and, and Dubanga has a great digital team uh, who manage that, right? And are adapting the content for digital. Um, then of course there's physical and we've always done physical products, but Anyone who's done uh, physical product distribution in Africa knows that logistics are difficult and expensive. Um, so in the past, uh, so, so maybe this is a good time. I, this was mentioned in the materials you shared, but we haven't talked about it on the call. Um, I was the CEO until 2022, um, and we completed last year a CEO transition, and we brought in a growth stage CEO um, who's really, you know, it's completely different being a founder CEO, which is what I did for 10 years, and being a growth stage CEO to figure out these next steps, right, of like you're reaching 30 million kids, you're, you've got a team of almost 100 people, how do you continue to scale and how do you make that sustainable? So this is something that, um, you know, I can talk about the past, but Mossy Wilmore, our CEO, is also now looking at, okay, how do we take a long-term future view of this as the African market grows? So in the past with these products, um, the difficulty, you can generate revenue, but they are not profitable. It was always costing us more to develop and get a product to the end user than the user is able to pay for that. Um, so, so it was good for engagement, right? Having T-shirts, having, you know, we've experimented with stuffed animals, we've had DVDs, um, you know, you name it, we've tried it. Um, but given the logistical challenges, um, the cost of transportation, the fact that, you um, you know, we're, we're, we're broadcasting nationwide, so we can promote something on, on TV that's easy to buy in Dar es Salaam, but if someone in Singida or Sumbawanga or a rural area of Tanzania needs it, um, you're looking at, you know, sometimes three times the cost of the product to physically get that product to them. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's not, you know, selling these physical products is, is a bit of a, um, it's, 
you can generate revenue from it, but there's extremely high cost to production, inventory, delivery, even collections, right? It used to be, at least in Tanzania, if people were paying with mobile money, they just round down. And you, you're losing a couple of cents, but losing a couple of cents every time is, you know, extremely costly. And, you know, either you're paying someone to call and follow up for those cents and, and the amount you've paid the person who doing the customer service is more than the amount you're collecting from the customer. Um, so, so I think anyone who's tried to do these physical things, it, it, it is a real challenge and it's a whole different industry. Um, and if you look at the folks who are really monetizing IP, forget, so Mattel's different because they're a toy company that went to TV. But if you look at who is um, something like a Peppa Pig, right, or Pink Fong, which are these highly successful video-based IP, which then have really popular consumer products, they are licensing those rights, right? They're not producing and holding inventory themselves. What they're saying is, I have a valuable IP. You're going to you know, pay us a royalty as you produce and distribute these products. So the difficulty for us in Africa is there's not, you know, you don't have a lot of local companies who are creating and distributing those kinds of products. Um, we're starting to. So that's where you're looking at kind of the future of Verizon of how do you create partnerships where someone else who specializes in, you know, how do we produce a bunch of stuff, get it to Nigeria and get it out to rural areas where our customers are and monetize that. We don't need to be doing that. That's where you can license the rights to that partner and then receive a royalty. Um, so, so, you know, Mwasi would really be the person to talk to about kind of the horizon of that going forward. Um, but, you know, I, I think it is really important to think about the difference between revenue and profit um, and things that generate revenue sometimes cost more than they earn um, versus models like licensing where you're maybe generating very small amounts of profit um, at a time, but someone else is paying that capital and logistical cost to do it. No, Nisha, while, while you're explaining that, I think a, a very important point that you, that you brought up uh, and, and that also probably, I mean, because you have been building it for, for a decade, uh, Ubongo Kids being your baby, and now you have brought in someone as more of a management CEO. How easy or difficult is it for a founder uh, to, to go on that journey or to, or to transition the operating business to, to a CEO? Uh, I mean, not too many businesses are, are fortunate to, to build legacy at scale and then having the appetite to go to the next level wherein they, they feel the need or the urge to bring in a, a professional CEO. So what, what has your journey in, in that been like and, and what made you kind of bring Wasi into uh, the operating CEO role? Yeah, um, so the first thing I would say is Wasi is not just a managing or operating CEO. She's really the leader of the organization. Um, and I, you know, I have been completely out of um, all of that leadership decision-making for almost a year now since we did a really long transition together. That is one of the things I would preface with, right? It's not like you bring in a higher CEO and do things you don't want to do and then you do the others. This has been a real process of learning and letting go for me. If you want to know the organization, you're going to be effective that you truly need it. Um, so now going to what brought me there, it's um, a really different skill set. Starting telling people, especially when you're a product oriented person, right? Like me, so if you're a developer or a creator making a product, the organization builder and grower. Um, so as a founder, you know, I learned that on the job. As I said, I learned, you know, started learning about all this organizational growth and HR and all of that while I was in my private but I was the big, most generalist person, right? I was the person who was going to do the paperwork and submit it. So that's really why I became CEO. Um, it wasn't that my goal had ever been to be a CEO or something like that. It was like someone had to do it. And I was doing all the kind of organizing and fundraising and all of that. So, so it made sense that it was me. Um, and I was really fortunate to get, um, you know, some free leadership coaching to go through a bunch of accelerators and different programs where they help you up your skills as a leader. And, um, you know, in the early, the first couple of years as you're really growing, you're doing, you're, you're doing most of the time, right? 
whether it's creating products or testing them with users or, you know, building systems, you are doing, doing, doing. At some point, you have to transition to leading. Some people call it changing from working in the company to working on the company, right? You're now, you're really focused on building an organization. And I never fully made the transition. I was doing both, right? So I was still writing episodes. I was I was watching all of our content. I was I was working with our production team, almost like moonlighting on that, and then doing my real job as CEO. Um, in you know, you just you basically end up working all the time, and it wasn't tenable. Um, and so I had this choice ahead of me, which was like, do I want to switch over to be fully leading and develop those skills because that's not my strongest skill set, right? Do, do I want to really invest? in learning that, in developing that skill set and just focus on being an organization leader and grower? Or do I want to keep doing and lend my stronger skills to have it in support and follow or the broader ecosystem in whatever way possible? So for me, I'm creating, doing things, leading with bringing me anxiety and spreading that to the rest of the team as we grew. Also because, you know, as you get bigger and safety people can't manage through individual relationships with everyone structures and growth in nine countries then. And so for me it made sense to say let's bring in someone who has that different skill set, who can focus on growing the organization. Um, and the other side of this for me was as I mentioned at the beginning I'm not African. It was really important that at some point we so we needed to find someone um, who was an African CEO who could grow. So it's really those two things together um, that made me to the board and to the team and say, hey, I really think it's time we need to bring someone in. Um, and I absolutely regret it. took years. I mean, I think I first spoke to the board about that in early 2019. Um, we didn't do our transition until 2022. And of course, they were closed in the middle there. So it was... You know, it was another, it was like another full-time job trying to find the CEO, work with the recruiters on that, document everything. Uh, we did a six-month kind of handover and then really step and get out of the way. Uh, but um, it was, you know, I'm still in the place where I'm 100% sure that was the right choice um, for the organization because it's just a completely different job role and skill set to be um, growing uh, a scaling um, growth stage organization versus building a startup and getting to the point of scalability. Great. Thanks. Thanks for the, the detailed reply to, to my question on, on the transition, the leadership, and, and how does that kind of affect your, your day-to-day job and even the, the entire transition process. I mean, uh, it's it's not completely hands off, right? I mean, you've been involved in in a whole bunch of things, and it's it's almost like a a new role that that you have taken up for for yourself while identifying someone who is going to probably take the company to to the next heights or or next levels. Uh, having said that, what's next for Ubongo Kids? I mean, already grown to to thirty two million. I'm I'm sure the market is is a massive one. Uh, how do you see the next phase of growth for Ubongo Kids, or where do you see it? Yeah, well, there's 500 million kids in Africa, 50 million more born every year. Um, so, so there's still a long way to grow. And um, whereas my journey of how you build the product, make it work, expand it, and make it scalable, uh, now the growth journey that Wasi's on is how do you build and grow an organization and ecosystem um, to take that from 30 million to 300 million um, and have those processes in place, you know, to go from 10 languages to 100 languages or, um, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to make any commitments for anyone here, but but what I'm saying is um, the next stage of growth is about the organization and growing its impact and making sure it's sustainable for the long run. And, uh, yeah, I, I see everything, you know, everything going in that direction and um, it's about having the team who can now deliver that system to be able to find bring them in um, and have them take leadership um, to figure out the next way forward uh, so that we really can reach every single child in Africa and give them quality of life learning that's going to help that 
change their trajectory in life so that they, they go on to do other things. Nice. And if we were to kind of have a, a parting question from my end before you open the floor up for the the participants or the audience maybe to take another question, what would be that that one message that you would want to give young entrepreneurs building a social enterprise uh, in Africa? Uh, it would be listen. Listen to your users. Listen to your team. I think being a founder CEO is not at all about being the boss. Right? If you're someone who wants to be a boss, like this is not the right role. Um, you know, you, you create a product, it's your boss, then you get users, then you're working for them. You gotta listen to them, you gotta do what they need, you gotta meet their needs. Then you start hiring people. Um, and now your job is to, you know, make sure you have a good organization and workplace and, and meet the needs of the people who are working for you. And in order to be able to do that, you've, you've really got to listen. I used to have like a Slack reminder for me every morning that was just like, listen. Because those of us who have a lot of ideas, we just want to like throw out our ideas all the time. We're not very good at sitting back and listening. Um, but really, all the, the best, whether it's innovations, changes, things we've done at Ubongo has come from having an open mind and listening to the users, to the team, to the partners, um, and then building from that. Awesome. And we're almost on the hour. So I'd like to open up the, the floor. If anyone has questions, maybe we have time for one. Yes, please. You're audible. Okay, great. Uh, my name is Emily Banya, and uh, I am a co-founder of a company called Botali Creative. And we basically deal in gamification, game-based learning, and games experiences. And uh, I, I really love the talk today that uh, Nisha gave about uh, basically using play and fun and as, as, as an avenue to impart knowledge. Um, and I guess the focus that she's talked about is younger kids. Now, for us, um, our social enterprise has been uh, going since 2019. And uh, we basically have focused on uh, using game-based learning as a sensitization tool for uh, the development world and also CSR programs. Um, so we basically go and we provide this kind of um, framework to maybe like a social enterprise who is going into slums, into deep down communities that do not have technology, they don't have televisions, or if they have phones, they have those banner phones. And that's literally the most technology they have, or they have radios. And that's about it. So we have to become very creative in the way we create the games so that it's even mostly material that they're familiar with. So we'll even use sacks as uh, as maybe the learning tools that we're going to put right and draw these uh, comics on so that they don't feel intimidated by the materials we bring to them. And we're even going to translate um, the games we're going to play with them uh, based on the languages that they're speaking in those communities. Because if we come in with this urban mentality, they, they, might, they might even add another extra barrier to it. So my question to Nisha is um, it's a two-parter. The first one is... Um, you're focusing on this edutainment, which is based around animation and teaching kids through cartoons. And I guess there must be more, but I mostly zeroed down on what you're putting forth, which is the, 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 the animations. And I wondered with, if you are pushing this on the African continent, won't that, um, won't that basically cut out most of uh, the demographic on the continent, which is people or kids or people who don't have that much technological access or they don't have gadgets. And maybe the people who do have this access are going to watch, um, they're going to have access to the television if they go to a local center or they go to a place. And even if they do have the phones, they don't have the smartphones, which would have access to all these things. And then on top of that, like here in Uganda, data is so expensive. Um, haven't you cut out like a whole demographic or population of people on the continent, first of all? And the second question is for you sound very eloquent and amazing, but you sound like someone who has maybe had the access to um, um, people who have had access to people with the Lego foundation. And I'm not saying it in a negative light, but doesn't getting funding for you, not saying that it's easier for long one. 
those are all really great questions. So I'll try to address it really quickly. For your first question, um, again, the reason why we use broadcast media is actually the most accessible in Africa. So, so I think if you're from a city, you won't know us for our cartoons, but Ubongo produces a huge amount of radio content. Play-based learning through radio, you know, facilitating play while kids are listening in local languages. And that really does have a strong reach in uh, rural areas. Um, and then beyond that, um, we have uh, toolkits and rural distribution partnerships. So actually in Kenya, we have a distribution team whose goal is not how do we face-to-face distribute content to every village, but how do we build the partnerships and systems so that every village can find access to our content. So sometimes that is through a local church, local schools uh, and we basically have free content packages uh, that they can use uh, that are, are kind of they're, they're multimedia so you can have audio content video content printable physical um, content and what we've generally found is as uh, kind of solar um, as access to electricity has increased, uh, solar power, even though people don't have access to TV and radio at the household level, they do at the community level. So providing the community with free educational resources in local languages, um, communities are stepping up and um, then creating local screenings and things themselves. So it could be whether in Kenya, for instance, schools have access to digital um uh, digital devices now within the school um, or somewhere like Tanzania where even in the most rural villages you're often finding someone with a solar panel and TV showing football matches. How do we make sure they have access to the content and that they're incentivized to show it for the community? So um, between listening on radio or even in refugee camps we've sometimes done speaker boxes or for someone with a boda boda they're parking and they have a speaker and they play the content to the community and that's how radio works there. Um, we're always technology the goal is to have content in the local language and then help whoever is there in the rural community to deliver it in a way that's right for that community. There's no way that, that you know we can have an on-the-ground team to every community in Africa, but what we have to do is partner through all these local CSOs, schools, churches, mosques, um, you know, individuals who are going home at Christmas, um, back to CBB, you know, need to take content out there. So I hope that answers that question. Second question on the Friday. You are absolutely right, and there's no way I would deny that. As I mentioned, we have five co-founders, um, and, and I was the CEO because I was managing the fundraising and doing the paperwork and all of that. And, and you're right, because, you know, I went to an Ivy League university in America. I knew how to talk to these folks, and I knew how to jump through those hoops. Of, one thing you get really good at in America is applying for things. I used to lot of write all these essays and it's the same when applying for grants or even you know when you get a due diligence questionnaire from a VC and I you know you're, you're right and I agree with you and really you know there's there's two things I think that have to happen to shift that and one is that okay we can have more programs to educate local founders and support them people to do those things and the other is really the idea of decolonizing funding from both the VC point and the, um, the the grant giving side. Um, so that's about funders partnering with local organizations that can do the funding and selection. It's about funders having locally based staff and teams. So you know, when I said the Omidyar Network, we're the first one to really step up and support us as a nonprofit. I don't think that would have happened if they hadn't had an on-the-ground team based in Nairobi, right, who were with us on that journey and really understanding it. So I think um, having, you know, let go of that power and have more decision-making done on the ground locally is critical. Um, and, and I think, for instance, Lego has had made some great steps towards doing that. When we run, got this Lego Foundation funded, it was not through us talking to the Lego Foundation. It was an open call for applications um, we submitted to, and then instead of having to say, you know, these, this table of reviewers in Europe, 
they actually had experts from around the world, a lot in Africa and Asia, who were coming in and ranking applications. And then all the applicants had to read up the applications and rank them too. So it was a more democratic process of doing it. I don't think that's a perfect process. I think there's a long way to go. But um, yeah, there's no doubt about it that having, you know, gone to an Ivy university in the U.S., having access to these numbers, frankly, having a U.S. social security number and being able to register a U.S. company very easily gave us a huge advantage. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, we've transitioned to an African CEO. Um, you know, we at Ubongo are committed to being in Africa for Africa and, and are moving that way, but I'm not going to deny that the systems are definitely stacked against local founders and that that's not right. Awesome. Nisha, I think uh, of the 17th, or you're the 17th episode that we are that we're doing today, and you're the first uh, not-for-profit social enterprise, but still leveraging the power of uh, new media, how you are trying to transform the landscape of of education through edutainment. I think it's it's a wonderful story and and a lot of points that you that you covered. Whether it is your your journey of uh, of building product, the kind of team that leverage that you leveraged or that allowed you to kind of put the product out there, which not many are are kind of fortunate. But at the same time, being able to be a, a content factory, build all those strategic uh, partnerships, uh, being able to scale, being able to kind of grow to 32 million viewers or customers, which is uh, which is a big, big deal. Uh, getting on board strategic partners like the Lego Foundation, raising capital for a not-for-profit social enterprise, and and lot of uh, questions that you that you answered as well. I'm sure that the viewers who have who have tuned in today they found it found it insightful. But also, like I said, we put up every episode the very next day on our on our Spotify channel on Apple Podcasts, and that's where we we start getting the the, the views as well. And I'm sure that a lot of folks who are building social enterprises in Africa for Africa. Uh, they would get many of their questions answered and and learn from someone who has probably built over the past decade and and now transitioning into a, into a new phase of of growth for the organization. So thank you so much for for making time on a on a Thursday evening, well past uh, nine pm. Uh, it was wonderful chatting with you and and hope that uh, you found the the engagement interesting as well. Thank you so much, AJ. And um, yeah, it's it's wonderful what you're doing. And I think, you know, just as like a kind of final thing, even on the last question, I think we have in many ways learned even more from looking at India and looking at South America and Southeast Asia and these other developing markets where we can learn from. And, and there are different models of, of things being done. It doesn't all have to come from Silicon Valley and the US and Europe. Um, so it's really exciting to see what you're doing and and i'm really excited to watch what happens in this space in africa over the next decade. so thank you awesome so space was downloaded via spacesdown.com visit to download your spaces today